We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Benjamin Boudreau, a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and a, a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. Joining me here today is Jennifer Oliva, who is a professor of law at Seton Hall University, and Anne Busted, who is a uh, professor at the University of Arizona. We'll be taking your questions towards the end of the broadcast. Um, you can ask them in the chat box or you can tag at PHLA Watch with pound COVID law briefing. Today's topic is public health surveillance. In the context of the COVID pandemic, we've seen governments around the world use a range of new technology-driven surveillance capabilities to do things like contact tracing, to map populations, to track symptoms, to enforce quarantines, and even to issue health and immunity passes. A number of these technology-driven approaches augment traditional public health interventions, and they might perhaps improve on our approaches to responding to COVID-19, but they also introduce perhaps new and worrisome privacy considerations. Um, so with that, um, I'll turn first to Jen uh, and ask her to lay out some of the, the legal landscape at the state and federal level uh, to allow them to conduct public health surveillance, um, in particular with respect to uh, sensitive health permission. Great. Thank you. An unfortunately complicated topic, so I'm just going to do a brief overview because Anne and I have lots of other uh, things we want to talk about. But from a public health pers uh, surveillance perspective, the core sort of legal authority come from two two primary things at the federal level: the Tenth Amendment and the uh, the states' right, the police power that the states have under the Tenth Amendment to protect public health and safety, uh, and then federal statutes, so the national emergency statutes and um, state and local statutes that give boards and state public health authorities the rights to have power police authority in the context of declared emergency by sort of a state of governor or mayor. There's, that's the power on the one side. On the other side, what we are a patchwork of laws, uh, some that have really particular applications on the federal and state level that uh, allegedly protect privacy. So we don't have, unlike the European Union, et cetera, we don't have a singular federal data protection law or federal privacy law. Um, federal statutory side of things, um, privacy is protected by a patchwork of law sector or industry based. So we have laws that protect banking information. We have laws that protect consumer protection data. We have a Secure Communications Act that protects email transmissions and other sorts of things like that. And on the health side, we have uh, the HIPAA statute with the high tech amendments that protect health data. Each of those statutes have their own strengths and weaknesses. Like I said, they're sector specific. And even within those sectors, they often only apply to particular kind of covered entities. So they don't necessarily, just because the data might fall into that category, doesn't mean that the data holder is actually obligated to protect your privacy under the statute. And HIPAA is quite famous for that, since we're going to be talking about health data today. Um, the real question here, if someone was asking me to do a HIPAA analysis, would be, is Google, is Google because they're contact tracing you or they're following your geolocation healthcare provider? And if they're not a healthcare provider, clearinghouse or data plan, they're not a covered entity and the statute would have no, no coverage whatsoever. So there's a lot of complex issues. There's also federal constitutional laws that are implicated here. And unfortunately, there are many. Uh, you can have Fourth Amendment issues around searches and seizures here from data collection, particularly if the government or law enforcement has to share or use that data, and that's already been going on in particular jurisdictions. You can have a thing against self-incrimination uh, when your government compels you to give up certain information that could reveal things about you that could subject you to prosecution. And perhaps the most robust constitutions right now on the federal level, and you've, people have heard a lot about this, that are implicated are the civil liberties that the First Amendment protect, the right to association, the right to petition and protest, <laughs> the right to organize religion, and the right to free 
speech. So the First Amendment has a robust panoply of civil liberty protections that uh, these this sort of stuff implicates. So, and then on the state level, to make this even more complicated, and I'll end here, uh, all the states have some sort of data protection law, uh, but they're very varied in how they apply. Uh, many states, California being the best example, just enact, just, just put into effect a statute in January of this year that is quite comprehensive, much more like the European law. Uh, but again, it only covers folks who do in California at a certain level of business. And so it's not universal again. Um, so there's a, any number of privacy laws. There's also, we've got three or four constitutional provisions to play here, state laws, and then we have all the public health authorities. Uh, so it's quite complicated to do an analysis of, of all sorts of different legal authorities come into play when we talk about um, public health surveillance. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks. That lays out a very, very complex landscape that, uh, yeah, maybe uh, we might be able to explore in a little more detail. Um, yeah, turning turning now to Annie. Um, now, we've seen uh, states uh, and, and the federal government being seemingly a big hurry to try to integrate technology-driven approaches to some of this uh, uh, public health surveillance. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the effectiveness of these technology-driven approaches and, and what are the conditions under which they, they, they might work? Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, so contact tracing in one form or another is going to be a really important part of the next year of our lives. And I think the first thing to kind of think about is that uh, invasive doesn't mean effective in this space. Uh, I, I, there's like a, an overwhelming sense that, you know, no pain, no gain. And the more information we're collecting, you know, the better outcomes we're going to have and, and the more um, we're going to be able to fight this thing. And that's not particularly true in this context. A lot of it comes down to not just how much information you collect about individuals, but how widespread your information is. Um, if you need to be very concerned about the uptake of tools um, and the usability of tools, a very well-defined tool that protect, that collects perfect information on 3% of the population still only has information on 3% of the population. And when we're talking about essentially a networked phenomenon, that's not going to be very helpful. Um, there are a lot of kind of built-in um, information collection mechanisms that already exist. Um, you know, your uh, your location is tracked um, by your cell by your cell phone provider. It's tracked through GPS. It's tracked through cell site data. Um, all of these forms of information collection raise real concerns um, with regards to privacy, particularly because um, these data are use of these data is very centralized. It's collected and compiled by commercial entities, um, often within central locations. Um, leading to very limited personal control over the data. One of the things we're starting to see now, which I think is really interesting, is tech companies um, exploring ways of managing data collection with fewer privacy risks and more individual control. Um, so I'm specifically thinking about things like um, that Apple and Google are proposing relating to use of um, Bluetooth low energy exchanges to obtain information about um, who you've been in contact with that's stored on your phone. Um, and it's kept like you know on an individual's device as opposed to centralized, um, like in a centralized um, a mechanism. But um, what I specifically want to point out is that the behavioral components of implementation are just as important as the tech ones. Um, if we, uh, you know, if we if we try to encourage use of apps by doing things like, you know, tying employment to your willingness to download um, and use an, an app that would would trace who you have um, contact with, um, we're asking for avoidance behaviors that would undermine effectiveness. If my job and my ability to go to work depends on me, um, you know, being willing to share enormous amounts of information about myself, I'm going to come up with ways of, you know, making sure I get the right, um, my app says the right things, regardless of what my behavior actually is. Um, even if your employees use, it's not as helpful if others don't. So even if we get like, you know, really widespread 
used to banks like you know Uber drivers, for example, it's not going to mean anything if Uber drivers are the only ones using it. Um, it also can lead to a false sense of security, which is something we have to be careful of. Is people saying, you know, I, well, I'm contact tracing, and my phone says I'm okay, so I'm okay. Um, your phone doesn't really know everyone you've been in contact with, um, so being careful there. Um, and it's it's not just the behavior of um, people being surveilled, but what's done with the information, what's done with the information when collected. So what does it mean when you have when you know your phone says that you've been in contact with um, with someone who has COVID, who's just been diagnosed with COVID nineteen? Are the police going to show up at your door and tell you to quarantine? Are you going to get a phone call from the public health department? Is are you going to get fired? Um, or are you going to get laid off? Are you going to get um, like you know a, a forced leave without pay from your job? Um, and all of those things, all of those factors are going to affect how people interact with this. Um, and similarly, I, I also think it's important to think about like the auditability of this. Um, if if I'm uh, if my phone tells me I'm I've been exposed to someone who has COVID-19, but it turns out it's a false positive. Do I have a mechanism in place for not being quarantined for two weeks because of that? Um, and a lot of um, what goes into ensuring we have good implementation is trust. Um, so trust is really important for managing the behavioral implications of this. Um, there was a Washington Post University of Maryland survey that came out yesterday, um, which found that 59% of U.S. adults surveyed would use a smartphone app that was basically designed for contact tracing. Um, 41% would have been unwilling and 18% um, didn't have a smartphone and couldn't have participated even if they wanted to. Um, and what was really interesting is they asked, you know, who would you trust to uh, keep the data anonymous? And tech companies were the least trusted. Um, so 30, 43% of, tr of people would trust tech companies to keep the information anonymous. Um, but public health entities were the most trusted, 56% um, or 57%. And actually, um, uh, academics were just were almost as trusted at like 56. So it was like one percentage point off. I just want to put that out. Um, and then finally, I, and I think this is this is a really important point to kind of close on. Um, these systems need to be designed for the privacy interests of vulnerable communities. Um, one of the things that's become really obvious throughout this is, is the internet connectedness of health. So if we have, if we have, um, you know, if one person in your community has COVID-19, it, it, it creates risk for you. Um, so everybody's health is really interconnected. Um, and vulnerable communities are most likely to be in essential jobs. Um, so they're most likely to be doing things like, um, you know, working in grocery stores, um, you know, all the jobs that people can opt out of during this crisis, um, which means they're also most likely to be the hardest hit. They have police bargaining power and we're seeing the, the widest spread of COVID-19 in these communities. Um, and so if we tie, um, if, if we create systems that exclude them um, or that they can't participate in or that they're nervous to participate in, we're really both putting them at higher risk um, and they're already at very high risk, which is a problem. Um, and it's also um, undermining the effectiveness of this in general, which puts everyone at risk. Um, so when we're thinking about the privacy interests at stake, we really need to think about the privacy interests for the most vulnerable people. Thanks, Annie. Um, Jen, would, would, would you like to add anything in, in terms of how you see the privacy risks associated in particular with these technology-driven modes of surveillance? I agree with everything that Anne said, and I just want to emphasize, and she said, you know, be careful about these kinds of problems. And one of the, the layers, not better now, that I'd like to add is not only did she just point out all the over-inclusive, under-inclusive cascade of potential collateral consequences of throwing this tactic at a situation, but she alluded to something that we often ignore, which is that we have had a failure of policy in addressing the COVID crisis from the jump here in the United States. We've been very slow to react. Uh, we don't have widespread testing. Any number of problems, clinically reported problems, been ru scientifically rushed through, uh, FDA approval, et cetera. Um, some clinicians have reported up to 30% false negative rates, nasal swabs when they're performed by uh, emergency and things like that. 
can only imagine what the rate would be uh, at, for at-home testing with the layered incentive that Ann pointed out of, I really need Bob, <clears throat> you know, and also I'm not an emergency room physician uh, to take the nasal swab. Um, serology tests also in the air. We haven't, we don't have the scientific things in place to, to, to make these apps as helpful as they could be if they were perfect and they were widespread and we, ha- and we had taken all the things into consideration that Ann said. So I'm particularly concerned we're trying to throw tech that Ann already explained to you has all sorts of layered problems associated with it at a situation we have very sort of imprecise sign the go and on the move but everyone's trying to do things really quickly so it's, it's just layered imprecision that can lead to a cascade of bad results and ultimately to our last point probably the worst outcomes for the people who are most vulnerable in our society so yeah maybe then I mean turn it turn it back to Annie I mean uh, I, you mentioned trust and, and the importance of sort of privacy protection to enable these uh, technologies to, to, to be useful um, how, what do you think is the appropriate approach to try to build that trust? I mean, you know, with the Google Apple protocol that you mentioned, they've sought technologically to build in certain features. So, for instance, the Bluetooth uh, beaconing is, is anonymous and randomized. Um, but are there things that, that we, we should see happen at the state or federal level to help bolster uh, this type of trust, to actually get these technological approaches to be helpful? So I think part of the reason why privacy is so important is that privacy breeds trust. It's, it's you know, showing people you will protect their information and that that's a priority for you is one of the ways in which you earn their trust to give you that information in the first place. And I think the fact that we're trying to build a public health surveillance system, essentially on the back of, of you know, existing surveillance systems, which don't necessarily um, encourage trust, um, may lead to pushback um, and like lack of, uh, of adoption amongst communities that have traditionally been targeted by the surveillance systems. So that's going to be like uh, something that's um, going to be a problem. You know, building, you know, building a contract tracing system off of Clearview AI means you're building in all of the distrust that's um, that's been built up like with that organization um, and the community. I think that's going to be a concern. I also think that this is a really great opportunity for um, for you know public health companies, uh, public health organizations who are you know already very very you know strapped. They're you know underfunded. They have a lot to do in this circumstance, and they're in an emergency situation. But I really think it's going to be important to 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 have um, have um, you know technology that's designed for the interests and the needs of public health rather than public health trying to figure out like what they can accomplish with the technology. So I think what I'd really like to see driving the space is the public health interest at stake rather than, you know, what companies are willing to and able to provide in their first um, in their first assessment. One of the things that's become shockingly clear through all of this is that people, like just as a general thing, is that, um, you know, people think their expertise is much broader than it actually is. Um, and I'd really like to see, um, I'd really like to see, um, you know, apps that are designed not just by tech people, but tech people who've really thought through like what information is needed from a public health perspective and all of that. So just because just because you can design an app doesn't necessarily mean you have the public health expertise to um, design an app that's going to be effective from that perspective. And I'd really love to see, you know, um, cross-cutting um, collaboration that's driven by the needs of the public health sector. Jen, would you like to add anything? Yeah. And the trust on the trust issue, uh, she's actually done on the tech we also have, and you all know there's an extravagantly long history in the United States, the government, the federal and state governments grossly abusing power uh, when they've, when they've uh, sort of uh, implicated privacy in the name of, of sort of national security and things like that. I mean, the Patriot Act and the post of a uh, data collection with that been now invested, there's been gross, gross abuse. Uh, most of those laws that are problematic and privacy invading uh, were not very productive, but yet are still on the books. Uh, so one of the fear that has been raised over and over again is how long, will, whatever data is collected, how long will the government be able to have it and cling to it, hold on to it, and go back and use it? Who will it be shared with, etc. We have a problem right now in the United States that if you even take 
the tech out of it. Several Southern states, and I just want to point this out to people, immediately contacted first responders testified, and gave them people's addresses. And that could a cascade of problems involved tech. It was a simple thing. We gave you the address. So now you're more wary to go into those communities. Um, you're slow to respond. You're sort of suit in there. You go in there. Um, the police in Indiana went so far as to say that they resuscitate people who had overdosed from drugs because they were susceptible to con- contracting coronavirus because of that. Um, and and then and then the police, it's, it's an occupational, and Anne po- pointed this out in her first uh, bit here, um, to become overly lax and confident because these I have this address, but everything's fine over here. So I'm going to let my guard down. Whereas this is a situation that demands vigilance at all times. People are asymptomatic, uh, how long the virus sort of lingers around, how long it can stay on surfaces and the like. So it's very difficult to trust the government when the police have already come out and done all sorts of things in particular communities already without even being enabled by this new tech uh, that have undermined people's trust and confidence and how they'll get by the police if they have very simple, not too technical information such as their home address. Um, and just building off that, I almost forgot my, my favorite point, which is that um, as we're designing this, part of what we need to do in order to um, build trust and make the trade-offs are worth it is we need like very transparent, open, um, you know, accountability, detailed accountability on how this is being used, what it's being used for, where it's being implemented, um, and what the outcomes associated with it are. Because we need to be able to, this isn't going to be, you know, something we're going to do once and then never do again. It's going to be an ongoing thing and we're going to need to figure out how to do it as well as possible in ways that um, threaten people's privacy as little as possible. And the way you do that is through evaluation and you do it by, you know, releasing information about how it's being implemented and who's implementing it and what data they're collecting in the whole nine yards. Um, so what I would really like to see in addition is um, like a really robust transparency framework that isn't just we are working with this company, but it's, you know, we um, there are this many people interacting um, with, with the apps in our community. Um, we see this many, you know, connections. We're seeing them like, you know, um, we're seeing them concentrated in these places. Something that um, is detailed enough that we're able to understand whether or not this works. Because um, I don't think it's, I think if, you know, you know, undertaking actions that have privacy consequences may be appropriate given the scope of the emergency. Um, but I don't think we should necessarily assume that any actions we take um, are going to improve everything. So we need to be able to develop evidence and best practices so that we can do better into the future. Um, yeah. And, and, and maybe just to add to that, I mean, there's the risk, I think Jen was alluding to this, of the sort of surveillance creep that once these programs are enacted, they become very sticky and there's a tendency for them not to go away. And mm-hmm. so these audibility functions, the transparency mechanisms, you know, and things like sunset clauses uh, will be, I think, particularly important um, to ensure that these programs are actually serving uh, the public health interests. Um, we're coming close to the end of the time, but I do I do want to turn it uh, over to Jen for any any final comments, and then and then maybe final comments from Annie, and then and then we'll close. My final thoughts are, and I think that what's important here is sometimes we do sort of balance liberties against public health surveillance and the public health, and that's appropriate. Uh, but we have, and the public will have been hollering this uh, January. Um, COVID has exposed any cracks in our healthcare system, in our social service safety net, um, goes to social determinants of health. We've seen particularly vulnerable individuals uh, furthermore throughout the crisis. And so it's exposed all the structural problems that we have in the United States. And I, I, I'll let Anne this, but I am very concerned, very concerned about the concept that we can fix those things, which we cannot. They were broken before we started here. Technology, more pervasive surveillance, that in and of itself has all the problems that Anne pointed out. I would uh, urge people to be extremely, extremely cautious and to hold government and public health officials accountable uh, because I can guarantee you, I'm not a technology like Anne is, but that, that technology is not going to
to fix the fact that we had a broken healthcare system and a broken social safety net um, that exactly this crisis has uh, from the beginning. Okay, so thanks, Jen. And then just to close out, I would say that um, like it's important to uh, you know, as as we're trying to manage this and figure out kind of what are or what interests are at stake. Um, I really want to make sure that we um, you know the public health considerations and the private considerations. We're trying to manage multiple interests, but they're not mutually exclusive. Um, I think it's a, it's a bit of a of a cop out to say you know oh like you know the privacy interest can I'm sorry the public health interest can um, necessitate information collection that otherwise would be unthinkable. Um, but the privacy interests are still there, um, and a and a well designed public health surveillance system will take those into account, and they'll take them into account for vulnerable communities. And it's it's not that you know it's not you know hamstringing the public health surveillance system to do this. It's making it stronger. Like you know the best data collection and getting good accurate data collection is going to involve the collecting data from with the participation and with the cooperation of commu- of, of like communities across the board. Um, and you get that through trust. So privacy is like a necessary component of public health surveillance. It's not something we have to overcome in order to get good public health surveillance. Um, and so I, they're, they're, we're managing multiple interests that are going on, but it, they're not, um, we don't have to pick one or the other. What we really have to do is figure out how to get both. Thank you very much to, to both of you. And thanks to you all in the audience for listening. Just a note, again, we'll be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Um, just go to the at PHLA watch or search for Pound COVID Law Briefing. The shows are archived uh, by the Week in Health Law podcast. And these briefings are produced by Faith Hollick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.